I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Frank Fregluzzi served in the FBI for a quarter of a century, ultimately winding up as assistant director in charge of counterintelligence, in effect, the Bureau's top spy catcher. And like many of his former FBI and Justice Department colleagues, he's outraged over Attorney General William Barr's decision to drop the criminal charge against Michael Flynn. And Fugliosi believes there could be much more coming from Barr as he seeks to permanently discredit the Russia investigation by Robert Mueller. But at the same time, Fugluzzi's not a fan of former FBI Director James Comey, finding much to criticize in how he handled the Russia probe and even the green light Comey gave for the interview of Flynn in the first place. As we all await what Judge Emmett Sullivan will end up doing about Flynn, we'll talk to Fugluzzi about what the FBI did right and what it got wrong on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So the Flynn case doesn't seem to be going away, despite the Attorney General's best efforts to um, uh, make it do so. We have Judge Emmett Sullivan, who instead of accepting the uh, Justice Department's motion to drop the charge against uh, Flynn, Sullivan issued this lengthy order saying he wants to hear from outsiders, amicus briefs, other lawyers to weigh in and give him advice on what he should do about the highly unusual decision by William Barr, the attorney general. Yeah, that, that was a signal to a lot of people that uh, he may want more than just advice in so-called Amici briefs. Uh, He may actually want to hold a hearing. And uh, for people who, allies of Mike Flynn's, they may not be resting quite as easy right now. I think that's a signal to a lot of people that uh, Judge Sullivan is is troubled um, by the Justice Department's actions here. You know, and I still find it perplexing. I was thinking about this and talking to some some old Justice Department sources of mine. And, you know, one of the things that uh, people have said to me is, look, if the Justice Department at the outset had said, you know what, this is a chicken shit case, Uh, we generally don't prosecute people for, you know, these kinds of lies to the FBI, unless it's part of a much larger investigation. They've got the discretion to say, let's not go after this. We'll do a defensive briefing if there are counterintelligence issues involved here, but it's just not a case that we need to pursue. But they didn't do that. They pursued it. Now, of course, it was a change of administrations, but still, they pursued it. Once you've, you know, indicted the person, once you've gotten guilty pleas out of him, then it's a very difficult and problematic thing to sort of at the last minute just kind of take it back 
particularly when this is not something that I mean, I don't think Bill Barr is reviewing, you know, all of the cases out there and trying to make decisions about whether prosecutors, you know, all you know, the whether, drug you know, cases and right. immigration cases and uh, all the other cases the Justice Department brings against not politically well connected people. Yeah. Right. So what? Right. Exactly. What's different about this case? Well, he's a buddy of the president's. And, and by the way, this is not a case where the Justice Department, where Barr came out and said there was some kind of, you know, outrageous prosecutorial misconduct. He just said this is a case that they shouldn't have brought. It was, you know, and so it just it looks really bad, even if there are some questions about whether they should have brought it in the first place. And so I think this is doesn't look good. I think it's um, going to hurt Bill Barr inside the Justice Department. I think it's you know going to be a wildly unpopular decision. It'll be uh, really interesting to get the perspective of. Uh, yeah, I mean, know. one question, though, is like, what is you know, what can Judge Sullivan do? He cannot prosecute the case himself. He's a judge. He's not a prosecutor. I don't know how much latitude he's got. That's why it'll be interesting to see what these former Watergate prosecutors uh, submit to the court about what they think he should do. He can hold a hearing. He can ask questions. He can bring. I was there when Flynn went for his sentencing and was grilled by Sullivan pretty sharply about whether he stood by, whether Flynn stood by his guilty plea. And Flynn did. So Flynn admitted his guilt directly to Judge Sullivan. And, you know, I, I think he'll probably have a hard time letting Flynn go, having heard from him, heard from the defendant saying, yes, I was guilty. On the other hand, I'm not sure how much latitude he's got. The one option that I've heard that seems plausible is he could dismiss it with prejudice so that a future Justice Department can bring charges, new charges against Flynn or prosecute the existing one, whether there'll be an appetite to do so in the next administration, whether that's Trump administration two or Biden administration one, I don't know, but that seems to be the only avenue this can go. Yeah, uh, beyond reaming out the attorney general, <laughs> which, right. uh, which you know, whatever he ends up doing, if there is a hearing, I would not be surprised if, if he does that. He's uh, has a history of being very tough on the government in uh, these kinds of situations. And so I, I would I would look for that one way or the other. Uh, one other case uh, in which Barr pops up that uh, we should just mention is our story from last night about the 9-11 case, which is uh, quite interesting. This is the lawsuit brought by the families of the victims of September 11th, accusing the Saudi government of complicity in the attacks. The Saudi role has been something you and I were reporting on nearly 20 years ago, quite aggressively. And uh, here we are nearly two decades later, and uh, it is still alive. And just to follow the bouncing ball for those those who haven't read the story, the families, the lawyers for the 9-11 families have been very focused on 
Evidence they believe will show that there were Saudi government officials, in particular a Saudi embassy official, who directed that there be support given to two of the hijackers that flew into uh, Los Angeles in January 2000 and then were later part of the team that hijacked the American Airlines flight that flew into the Pentagon. Barr and Richard Grinnell, the acting director of national intelligence both filed motions to the court invoking state secrets so all the evidence about the what the fbi had in its own files about the saudi embassy official and others who gave support to those hijackers could not be disclosed Barr and grinnell argued it would be a threat to national security and then a fbi assistant director for counterterrorism files a 40-page declaration in which in one paragraph she discloses the name of the Saudi embassy official who the FBI who FBI agents thought had ordered the tasking to provide support for those hijackers quite a screw up on the FBI's part they have since stricken that document from the public record but it you know once again has raised the issue what does the government know about what the Saudis were up to in the run-up to the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, well, a couple of things. First, kudos uh, to you, Isakoff, for actually reading to, like, the end of the filing. It's just a <laughs> note to all those reporters out there. It was actually page seven. Read. I didn't have to read the whole 40 pages. I found it on page seven at the bottom all of the right, page, okay. paragraph all right. G. All right, well, you got through seven pages. Uh, but the other, the, the kind of irony here is the government going to all these lengths for so long to keep this stuff under wraps because of the damage it could do to national security and then to be so careless as to actually divulge it themselves in, you know, pl- uh, court pleadings. You know, it's just like... It's pretty rich. Yes. It, it is it, it is rich. You know, the other thing is there's just like this nagging feeling that, you know, you have more than a feeling because there's clearly evidence here going on for so long. It's so many years, almost 20 years after 9-11, and we still don't know the full story of the 9-11 conspiracy and, um, you know, whether there was uh, Saudi government involvement uh, in it. This is something that the 9-11 Commission looked at in great detail. They did not come to a conclusion. They didn't say they found evidence, but they also said they didn't get cooperation from the Saudis. And, you know, the you and I reported on Al-Hazmi and Al-Madar and the fact that they had come, were living openly in San Diego for many, many months before the attacks, and that there were these, uh, you know, these Saudis um, who were helping them out. And then there was a mysterious third man. And uh, that third man was someone who, you know, worked in the in the embassy. Look, it's far from proving that the Saudi government was in any way involved in the plot itself, but still a lot of unanswered questions and um, a lot that the American government knows that that it has not revealed. So one other anecdote, which uh, from my reporting, which I'd like to share is last September 11th. The families, representatives of the families, meet at the White House with President Trump, and they're urging him to release the FBI documents about the Saudis. And Trump really gets energized when he's told that 
among those who had been resisting disclosure over the years was Robert Mueller when he was FBI director and James Comey when he was FBI director. And when Trump hears that, he says, uh, hey, Melania, because the first lady was there at the time, the same scum and dirty cops that have been fighting us have been trying to keep the lid on these documents. And then he tells the families, I'm going to do everything I can to help you out. Don't worry. And as it turns out, the next day, Barr filed his state's secrets uh, motion that basically undercut what the president himself had said. It's uh, just one more insight into the uh, internal workings of the Trump administration and Donald Trump's mind itself. Anyway, on that note, let's get to uh, Frank Figluzzi. We now have with us Frank Figluzzi, the former assistant director of the FBI in charge of counterintelligence. Frank, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, Mike. A lot to talk about here, which you have been opining and writing about, starting with the uh, Michael Flynn case, the Justice Department's extraordinary decision to drop the case against Michael Flynn last week. The uh, Justice Department filed a motion in court saying the interests of justice would no longer be served by prosecuting Mike Flynn. What did you make of that decision? Well, first thing I did, Mike, when this news broke was I read the DOJ filing at least twice, and I've read it several times since then because I wanted to see how this was being spun. And let me tell you something, almost line for line, that filing to dismiss Flynn's charges is filled with half-truths, distortions. And the only conclusion that I can come to when I read it is that it's designed to deceive. And I think I think Judge Sullivan has caught on to that, which is why we're now seeing him call for amicus curiae briefs. He's probably going to hold a hearing, would be my guess, and get to the truth. But let me let me give you just some of the examples of the distortions. The biggest one being, of course, that there was no valid reason to be sitting across from Flynn as FBI agents and asking him questions. Barr has said, and others repeatedly, including a steady drumbeat on Fox News every night, that they were trying to set a perjury trap, that they were trying to get him to lie. And of course, the now infamous handwritten notes by someone who actually came after me at the Bureau and headed to counterintelligence, Bill Priestap. His handwritten notes are being flown like flags all over right-wing fringe conspiracy sites as bombshell evidence that the FBI's interview was designed to get uh, Flynn to lie. Well, let me tell you something. There was a valid counterintelligence case on Flynn. We could go into as much detail as you'd like, but those interview strategies and notes look like virtually every interview I've ever been a part of, particularly in the counterintelligence world. Here's what I mean. Number one, if you look at Priestap's notes, what's our goal, he says in this interview? Number one, get to the truth or get an admission. Yeah, no kidding. That's always the goal if you've got a target and threat sitting across from you. Number two, the handwritten notes say, get him to lie to get prosecuted or fired. Yeah, no kidding. When you're dealing with a counterintelligence threat, you get to try to neutralize that threat. If you don't get the truth, you don't get cooperation, you have to mitigate that threat. And I know people might flip out and go, oh my God, you're referring to Michael Flynn as a counterintelligence threat. Yes, I am, because he was sitting in the chair of the National Security Advisor. It doesn't get much worse than that if you are have concerns that have to be resolved. 
Frank, can I stop you there? Because the one of the issues that was raised, certainly in some of the supporting material, is that when then-director Comey gave the sign-off to go interview Flynn, he didn't coordinate or even inform the Justice Department. And the Justice Department, people at the highest levels, were quite ticked off about that. They thought that that was a decision that they should have been made. And their view at the time was, hey, he is the national security advisor. We need to tell the White House about this, that this is a White House matter He's the national security advisor. Was Comey right to do it without coordinating with the Justice Department? And was the Justice Department wrong to believe that the first step should have been to go to the White House and inform them about what they knew was on the transcripts? of Flynn's call with uh, Kislyak, the ambassador? Well, ultimately, we know Sally Yates did, in fact, go to the White House and, and let them know that they had a problem on, on their hands. A- after the fact. Yeah, that's correct. But so I want to make an important point because you, you've raised one. I am not a complete, total apologist for Jim Comey. And that can be an entire different discussion dating back to his infamous press conference regarding Hillary Clinton. I am aware that he did not fully trust the Department of Justice to do everything correctly. I'm also aware that it is inconsistent of the FBI to to head to the White House to do an, an interview, particularly of a subject, without first getting at least concurrence, if not tolerance, from the Department of Justice. So when you look for things that should raise flags, you should be looking at inconsistent behavior. And yes, you can say that if you were to look at a checklist of things that should be suggested and recommended is, hey, if you're going to interview somebody with counterintelligence concerns sitting in the White House, you probably should let DOJ know at the very least. So, yes, I'm concerned about that. But I know enough about Comey that he had concerns that this would not be handled correctly. Is that is that his decision to make? I mean, he's the FBI director. He's not the attorney general. And it is a pretty politically sensitive matter to interview a a, a national security advisor at the White House. Does he get to make that call on his own? Should he? Well, he did. Now, the more important question, as you said, is should he have? And there's a number of behaviors in Comey that, in retrospect, have really cast the FBI in the worst possible light, which is to cast them in a political light. So looking back, Comey has done some damage to the FBI's reputation because he politicized the FBI without intending to do so. And so we need to look at that, but we need to look at it in the totality of circumstances, which is to say that he had valid concerns. Inspector General has found this. There were valid concerns to open a valid predicated counterintelligence case against a man who had been an unregistered foreign agent of Turkey, had been paid substantial amounts of money to give a speech in Russia where he sat at the same table as Putin, and more importantly, had been captured on tape because of what we do with foreign officials um, and their conversations, had been captured on tape, essentially undermining the, the policy of the existing president by bringing up the sanctions issue. So how do you determine whether someone is a suspected threat, whether your suspicions are valid, see if he'll lie about it. That was a valid approach. I wish Comey had gotten the approval to do so. I'm not sure politically that he would have been allowed to do so. So ironically, in an attempt to cut through the politics of DOJ, right, and the bureaucracy there, 
he ended up politicizing the Bureau more than ever. Frank, I, I want to unpack a couple of things that we've just been talking about, and they both go to the fact that this was a counterintelligence case. And one is something that Mike brought up before, not just about whether Comey should have gotten approval from DOJ, but the underlying issue is whether DOJ should have been able to go to the White House and essentially give the White House a defensive briefing about Flynn. And it kind of relates to what you were talking about before, about that in some case, in some ways, the standard in this case as a kind of a perjury case may be different because it's a counterintelligence case. It was so important to go to Flynn, interview him and get him to lie, if I understood you correctly. So explain to our listeners how this being a counterintelligence case makes it different in both of those respects. Well, so first of all, I, I think a lot of the public lack an understanding of the nuances of counterintelligence, which is to detect foreign threats to the, to the nation, both internal and external, deter those threats, and ultimately defeat those threats. And so if you have a valid case open and valid concerns, and a man is literally now sitting in the White House, steps away from the president of the United States, you've got to detect whether or not there's a threat there. And you, you can see now all of the conspiracy theories coming out, right? The, 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 all of the stuff you hear on Fox News and, and the, the president has retweeted the, this Federalist article that says, holy cow, the FBI and the intel community had briefed Obama and Biden and here was Susan Rice and here's Clapper and maybe John Brennan and, and Obama told them to go forward and, 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 and let's go after Flynn. No, actually what, what transpired there is that there was a briefing to Obama during the transition where they said, we're really concerned about this guy Flynn, and we're about to engage in classified transition briefings with this team. Here's what we've got on the whole picture. And Obama said, you know, let's get it resolved. He, he asked the question, how much can we trust them in the transition briefings? So in that context, you've got to get this done. You've got to get this done quickly. Flynn rises uh, finally into the White House. Now we're into uh, January. They finally discover that he's on tape and they say that it's time it's time to pull this trigger and get this done. So the goal of counterintelligence is not always prosecution. In fact, that doesn't happen in 99% of counterintelligence cases. Rather, you are mitigating or deterring and defeating the threat. But then why not go make your first move a defensive briefing at the White House of that works just fine if you trust everybody who's in the White House. But when you've yeah. got a larger, let, let's let's understand what was going on at this time. Right. You, you've got Crossfire Hurricane opened. You, you've got concerns against a number of people, including the campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. You've got concerns about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and the Russians and Roger Stone and on and on and on. And you're wondering who the hell can we actually brief and trust at this point? But at the end of the end of the day, the president is in charge of the U.S. government. He's just been elected. The FBI ultimately works for him. If you have a counterintelligence concern, don't you have to take it to the very top of the government? And if you don't, then who's in charge? Who's making the decision? The FBI director? Yeah, there's no. So excellent discussion points. And there's no rule book for this. There's there's nothing in the FBI manual that says, if you think the president is compromised and the team around him, please do the following. It's not there. What I would default to, 
based on how I conduct myself, is I would go with the most consistent protocols and policies that we could possibly adhere to to avoid every appearance of politicization. But there's another factor here, and it's the Comey personality factor, which is don't forget where Comey came from. He was previously the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, arguably the most powerful U.S. attorney's office in the nation. Number two, he becomes the deputy attorney general of the United States. He's essentially running the Department of Justice and over directly overseeing the daily operations of the FBI. Okay. He now, in a sense, I hate to say it this way, but he gets demoted really to FBI director. And so he seems to fail to understand that he's accountable to bosses at DOJ. He's he's worn those powerful hats before and he seems unable to take those hats off. So he pulls triggers that most FBI directors wouldn't think of pulling. And I, I view that in, in that context. I have a couple of questions about FBI procedures here. And this really, in some ways, does go to the heart of this case. Now, there's no question, Michael Flynn pled guilty. He did so twice, you know, the second time in front of the federal judge, Judge Sullivan. So it seems reasonable to accept what he has sworn to, that he lied. On the other hand, we haven't seen the transcript of his conversation with the Russian ambassador Kislyak, where he is alleged to have told him, do not respond to the sanctions just imposed by President Obama. We'll revisit that once we take office in a couple of weeks. But we also haven't seen a transcript of the FBI interview of Flynn because you don't do you don't tape them. It's all handwritten notes. And I just want to throw one thing out at you before I close this question. When we journalists do sensitive interviews with important subjects, we tend to tape them because we want to get it exactly right. The FBI, which can send somebody to jail for lying, doesn't tape those interviews. Why not? Okay, we'll take that in reverse order. Let's do the tape issue because it's come up throughout my career at the Bureau, particularly later. And it's it's evolved, but not, not so much on the counterintelligence side. Um, let's talk about the criminal side. Now, the current policy now, at least when I left the Bureau, was that they had gotten to the point where they said, you know what, when you're, when you're looking at a, a criminal confession to uh, the following crimes, included homicide, it included uh, sexual assault of a child, and everything was going to hinge on that very serious felony confession, you could indeed tape the interview. And in fact, the U.S. attorney could also weigh in and say, I want this interview taped. Historically, the FBI's been hesitant to do that because our interview techniques would be subject to discovery, would be subject to exposure to the bad guys. I'm very biased, but I happen to think that we are the best interviews in law enforcement and intelligence. We get confessions much of the time, and it's because of the way we, it's, it's everything from rapport building to winding a narrative that presses the right buttons on the subject and we simply didn't want that out. It's evolved now, Mike, to the point where if you got particularly a homicide, sexual assault of a child, you think you have limited circumstances to, for this guy to, to be around and cooperate, you absolutely can tape. Let, now let's move to counterintelligence. Counterintelligence, even more sensitive about what we might disclose 
to a subject that might ultimately get out in court and create issues. The methods and techniques of getting, you know, again, look how the public has reacted to just the notes of planning the interview. Look, look at that. What, what this is, what's happened with just a note that says, get him to lie, to get him fired, to get him prosecuted. Yeah. And, and of course, those of us who, who've worked these, these cases go, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the goal. Yep. Neutralize the threat. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, imagine now all of that getting on tape where you're trying to trip the guy up and make sure even even after you've told him, hey, hey, Mike, you remember that we do tape foreign officials. You know that, right? Oh, yeah, right. And he still lies to you. So, look, the bureau's moving in the right direction with regard to taping. It's become fairly common now on the criminal side. It's not there on the counterintelligence. I, I, I get that. But the reason this is relevant to this case in particular is if you look through all the material that was disclosed last week, it included Comey's closed door briefing to the House Intelligence Committee in which he's asked about the interview of Flynn and whether or not the FBI believed this was in March of 2017. So long before he's pled, whether Flynn had lied and what Comey says in there is it was this is his words, a close call. When I saw that, I said, oh, my God. You know, if I'm the defense lawyer for Flynn and this case were to go to trial and the government is saying the evidence is overwhelming, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. There's no transcript. So we're just taking the prosecutor's word for it. I call the FBI director as a uh, as a witness saying you said this was a close call. You didn't think this was beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Some of this goes toward uh, two things. One is a materiality call. So that's the thing is about close call could also be Comey wearing the lawyer hat going, well, you know, I, it's a, I, I, he hedged. He, he just had to go to substantive materiality. And I, w- I want to talk about materiality in a minute. But also the agents came back uh, allegedly and said, yeah, we're you know, he seemed seem pretty straightforward with us. That goes toward, when an agent says that, that goes toward demeanor and in, in dis, what we call indicia of deceptiveness, right? So he's he's not sweating. He's not looking at the floor. He's not got his arms folded, right? And, uh, and that goes toward whether he's, he, he's comfortable in his lie or comfortable with what he's telling you. And it also goes toward, lastly, if you've got something that's on the line and your goal is neutralization of a potential threat, then you cross that line and go, yeah, it's on the line. You know what? We're going to err on the side of caution in neutralizing a threat and we're going to seek prosecution. And prosecutors ultimately did. And most importantly, Mike Flynn admitted it and pled guilty in court. I want to go back to quickly to the tape issue. Imagine imagine this in a sensitive counterintelligence case where you're doing an interview and there there's a bit of a pretext here, Mike. And by the way, shock of all shocks, the FBI conducts many pretext interviews all day. What do I mean by pretext? Hey, we're you think we're here for this, but we're really here for something else. And I know that the right wing is flipping out over this, but if you've watched any uh, Law and Order episodes, you know this happens all the time. And so imagine plopping a tape recorder down in that environment and saying, hey, sir, you don't mind um, if we take this interview about talking about the weather, do you? And of, cor- of course, that has a chilling effect. And of course, it's, you're not going to be able to do what you need to do in that interview. So uh, a tape recorder is the 500-pound gorilla in a, in a room if you bring it in. Frank, I, I want to step back a little bit and talk about what this Flynn case 
tells you about where we may be going. And you wrote a provocative piece on the NBC News site about signs coming out of the White House, mostly in the form of uh, Trump's tweets, but also some of his allies, also suggesting that the president and the attorney general, Bill Barr, are sort of laying the groundwork to come after the president's enemies, starting with Barack Obama, John Brennan, James Clapper, Jim Comey, Susan Rice. And you talk about the possibility that they would censor them or even criminally charge them. So I want to ask you, what is your basis for that? I think the term you use is predictive analysis. Talk about that. Why do you think that that's where things may be headed? Well, it's funny because when I started drafting that article, I was realizing that eh, that's a bit of a stretch to get into predictive analysis, you know, and people are going to say, well, you're really you're really moving forward prematurely. And then as I finished drafting the article, and by the way, this happened in a matter of like 24, 48 hours. Guess what? You didn't need to be clairvoyant to see what was happening. It actually played, started playing out. It's still playing out today. What do I mean by that? Well, it started with, of course, the request to dismiss Flynn. But then we see the president doing things like explaining to the press, hey, I just had a phone call with Putin. And um, even though the White House summary of the call doesn't say this, I actually talked with him about the Russia hoax. And by the way, a lot of things might happen, quote unquote, a lot of things might happen. It's all coming out now. It's a hoax. Okay. And you, you had that kind of conversation with Vladimir Putin. Okay. And then over that weekend, the president retweets a number of Fox News and the Federalist articles, all saying in one form or another that Obama, Biden et al. Uh, orchestrated the case against Flynn and ultimately the Russia case and quote unquote, more is coming. And then let's go back to Attorney General Barr, who's already said that the in his opinion, the Russia investigation was designed to sabotage the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. He's got John Durham, U.S. Attorney Connecticut, working on all of this. And then we see the infamous that Rich Grinnell, the acting DNI, walking with great fanfare, walking into the front door of the Department of Justice with a satchel in his hand. And what has he done? He is unmasking the names of the people who requested to know who was talking to Kislyak on tape about undermining uh, the foreign policy. Of He's unmasked the unmaskers. He's unmasked the unmaskers. <laughs> So, right. look, the president continues, even at a press conference in the Rose Garden, the president just the other day when asked, what are you accusing Obama of? He says, Obamagate. And then Phil, it was Phil Rucker. And then Phil Rucker says, well, what, what's the crime? Oh, you know what the crime is. So I've gone from like doing predictive analysis to, by God, it's, it's happening right in front of our eyes. So we're, the question now is, to what extent does this go? And I, here, here's what I'm. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to see this play out almost right up to the election. They're going to pull out a Durham report or innuendo, or even worse, implying that the Russia case not only should not have happened, but that all of its dozens of indictments are now somehow invalid. Maybe worst case scenario, maybe even the indictments of of 26 Russians um, who by all accounts, messed with our election or tried to, there, there's going to be an implication that eh, those things are tainted. Fruit of the poisonous tree. The whole thing should never have happened. You'll see President Trump try to remove sanctions. 
and and we're we're going to see the rule of law completely trampled. I got to say, Frank, I, I think the idea that they could drop the charges against the Russians seems a bit uh, a bridge too far, I think, even for Bill Barr on this one. I mean, the, the conclusion that the Russians hacked the DNC and the Podesta emails was, you know, it's the U.S. intelligence community that unanimously found that the FBI, the Mueller report, the House Intelligence Committee under Devin Nunes concluded that the Senate Intelligence Committee under Richard Burr concluded that. So I find it hard to believe they would go that far. You wrote in that same piece uh, about Barr that he's ignored the findings of his own inspector general. And I think that refers to that part of the Horowitz report that said that the initial investigation was adequately predicated. Of course, that report also found many failings by the FBI, serious ones in the handling of the Carter Page FISA. And then you point out Barr appointed a handpicked U.S. attorney to try to try and develop a vast conspiracy theory. Now, John Durham, is a career prosecutor. He was handpicked by Eric Holder to conduct the uh, torture investigation for the Obama Justice Department. Do you have any reason to believe that John Durham is an unethical prosecutor who would prostitute his uh, his principles in order to deliver a uh, a politically charged report that William Barr can use to satisfy the president? Negative. I worked for John Durham before I even came into the FBI. I worked for him as an, a young intern on the Organized Crime Strike Force in New Haven, Connecticut. He is a straight-up, solid prosecutor. He also worked, by the way, the Whitey Bulger mess with corrupt FBI agent in FBI Boston. So he's a serious guy, and um, he's got a good, serious team around him. I don't worry about John Durham. I worry about William Barr because he's shown us who he is. So he could take an IG report. He can take a special counsel report. He can sham it up and spin it with a four-page summary, announce a pre have a press conference before it's ever released to shape public opinion. And when he's interviewed now and asked about Durham, and he's asked questions like, is Durham ever going to issue a report? And he says, I don't know. We'll see. That gets me very worried, meaning I don't want to see anything in writing from Durham. I want to do it myself. So I, I'm, that's where I'm worried. Take a, take a solid guy with integrity and then twist and contort what he's said. Frank, what do you think the toll of all of this is on just kind of average, you know, brick agents in the bureau? I mean, you know, a buddy of the president who's pleaded guilty, you know, not once but twice. Uh, that case is, uh, you know, pulled back at, you know, at the last minute, you know, some of the, the comments that Trump obviously has been making about the, the FBI and the deep state. Is the FBI, you know, kind of a reflection of the divisions and the kind of dueling narratives that we've got going on uh, more generally? Or is this having a real impact on morale at the Bureau? What did the, your former colleagues say and, uh, about all of that? So the, the move to dismiss the Flynn charges has, has, if there's anything positive, and there's very little that's come out of this Flynn uh, move by, by Barr, it's, is that it's caused me to catch up with some guys and gals from the Bureau that I haven't talked to in a while. And to a person, they are dismayed by the notion that a person can lie to the Bureau, plead guilty to it, and get off. It's disturbed every single person I've talked with. 
And by the way, DOJ, similarly, morale being impacted very negatively. And so it really, people are worried not only about that instant case, but they're worried about what, what it foretells for the future. Imagine across the nation, prosecutors having to deal with prosecutions of uh, what they call Title 18, 1001, which is lying to a federal agent. Imagine uh, every defense attorney now filing motions going, eh, it wasn't material, eh, uh, they tripped him up, they made him lie. Um, this is gonna this is gonna come back to bite people for years. But there's another thing going on, which is particularly among those who have had most of their time in the bureau in the field, the, this has exacerbated the the us versus them headquarters empty suits versus field agent mentality, which is when headquarters gets involved in a case, it gets messed up. <laughs> and by by the way, I've spent a lot of time at headquarters, and I agree. I agree. And it's back to that inconsistency thing that we talked about, Mike. When I, I had this happen in my career, where I had to talk the seventh floor out of actually doing an interview themselves. I was like, no, 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 no. And, and you know, I got, I got uh, stares, like with daggers. And I said, no, no, no. These two field agents over here, they've got to do this interview. You know, Kleidman and I have been uh, listening to FBI agents grumble about headquarters for decades now. And, of course, I do. There's a irony there because the guy I remember being most vocal about it at first was Louis Free when he first came in talking about how street agents should be calling the shots, not headquarters. Then, oh, of course, yeah, once he became he FBI in. director, yeah, he, he was telling the street agents what to do, who to, who to go after, who to target. So, uh, yeah, infamously, he did it himself when it came to Richard Jewell. In the Richard Jewell yeah. case. Exactly. He was in there. Yeah. That was a disaster. Yeah, I was at headquarters <laughs> when Louis Freak came in and announced that he was emptying headquarters. There's too many people here. And and yeah. every you know and and I I was actually too new at headquarters to get impacted, but the guys that had been at headquarters for a while, they all ended up going to the field, and there you know that was hysterical to watch. But slowly but surely, you know that was a knee jerk reaction. Slowly but surely, Free realized that uh, we got to restaff headquarters. There's actually no program management going on. So and then as you pointed out in the horrible Richard Jewell example. He was literally on the phone calling the shots of that interview, and went and it went yeah. terribly, terribly wrong, and made the wrong, <laughs> the wrong calls. Uh, hey, wanted to just uh, switch gears as we wrap up here, Frank. Uh, we had a story last night about how the um, FBI Assistant Director of Counterterrorism filed a declaration in the 9/11 case, the lawsuit brought by the families of the victims of September 11th against the Saudi government in which the uh, declaration accidentally disclosed the name of a Saudi embassy official who agents believed had tasked others to support two of the hijackers who flew into the country on January 20 and later were on the plane, uh, the American Airlines flight that crashed into the Pentagon. The FBI, after we contacted them, or the Justice Department, withdrew that declaration because... The attorney general and the acting DNI, Richard Grinnell, had filed motions saying that all the information relating to this follow-up investigation on 9-11, it was called Operation Encore, and it was looking specifically at 
potential Saudi links to the 9-11 plotters. Barr and Grinnell have declared all of that state secret, saying it would pose grave damage to national security if it was ever disclosed. You were head of counterintelligence well after 9-11. You no doubt had the Saudis on your radar screen. What is your sense of whether we know everything we need to know about the 9-11 case and the uh, possibility of Saudi links? Well, I don't, I don't think the public um, has had the benefit of understanding the full linkages there. And even within the intelligence community, this is extremely compartmented information. So let me speak just very generally. The Saudi government is a force to be reckoned with with regard to their linkages to radical, violent extremism, their funding of operations within the United States to include radical Muslim clerics. That's been that's been established, and that is public information. Their funding of madrasas or Muslim schools and even clerics that expound um, radicalism and extremism has been well documented. Are they getting better at it? Yes. Is it a constant whack-a-mole approach? Yes. With regard to their intelligence service, they are stone-cold killers. Anyone need look at the death of the journalist, the Washington Post journalist Khashoggi, to see what they're capable of. And so to think that they did not play some knowing role or at least some indirect role in 9-11, I think would be naivete. And the fact that, that a name's been accidentally disclosed of a Saudi official in this lawsuit doesn't surprise me. The accident concerns me. I can already hear uh, the deep state conspiracy lunatics saying that here goes here goes the FBI trying to mess with Trump's relationship with Saudi. They did this deliberately. Um, but I can tell you this, if there's evidence of uh, Saudi official involvement under a normal administration, which we are far from right now, you would, of course, see legal action taken against this official if the evidence was there. What you're saying, Frank, is that the American people still don't know what really happened, the entirety of that 9-11 plot, the, the, you know, the most deadly terrorist attack on the United States. And there are still really big questions out there about whether our ally, Saudi Arabia, had some hidden role in that plot. I, I think it's safe to say that there are unresolved and undisclosed factors uh, touching on Saudi government knowledge and or um, involvement in in or with the 9-11 hijackers and plotters. A story Kleidman and I broke back in 2002 was that the CIA knew about these two hijackers, Al-Madar and Al-Hazmi. They monitored them at the uh, Kuala Lumpur Al-Qaeda planning summit, and they knew that they had flown into the country, into the United States, and never informed the FBI one theory about all this is that the CIA didn't want the Bureau mucking around on a case that they still hoped somehow to do on their own, that maybe they were going to try to track these guys, turn them, and that they might have asked the Saudis to keep an eye on them. And that's why we have the information about multiple contacts between people related to the Saudi embassy and the Saudi government communicating with these hijackers. Do you give credence to that theory? So uh, so I was I'm with you all the way until and by with you, I mean, 
Um, this, I, I'm fully aware of all of these issues, and they were deeply explored in the 9-11 Commission. Um, and we can talk about that in a second. But the, until the last part of your sentence, which was, which I've never heard before, which is that they had at, perhaps asked um, the Saudis to to keep track of these guys in the U.S. I that that's news to me. I've not heard that one before. And you know, it is a theory. By the way, Richard Clark has given some credence to the theory. But yeah, go ahead. The, the earlier part of the theory, some of it has actually been corroborated. I mean, the fact the fact that they knew they were here, at least those two guys. But let's let we can talk a little bit about this desire to not tell the bureau. You you're aware that uh, the commission ultimately found that the, it was the agency's claim that they did provide these names and and the concerns to the FBI at a fairly low level. And that poor FBI agent now retired, who they claim to have given it to has testified ad nauseum on this issue. And, you know, you, you can, yeah, you can look at this, you know, it, it, it harkens back to, let me try to draw an analogy. I don't, you know, the story of, of the FBI trying to tell the, the Democrats that their, their campaign, their headquarters got hacked into by the Russians. Right. Some grade 14 supervisor at headquarters kept calling the IT guy at DNC headquarters and saying, big problem, big problem. And the IT guy looked at it and went, I don't see any Russians. And and this went on and on like five times before it went. He also didn't even believe it was an FBI agent at first. Right, he thought right, it was right. a hoaxer. So yeah. It's kind of like that. It's the this, what the CIA says. Hey, we told Joe Agent over here that these two guys were a problem, right? And Joe Agent gets interviewed and goes, I I, I think they, they gave me those two names. I think. I think I passed them on to somebody, right? It wasn't director to director pounding on the desk. There's two stone cold terrorists that, that are in the United States now. That didn't happen. Well, only a reminder that these stories uh, uh, linger on for years. Here we are, twenty almost 20 years later, still talking about this, which is... Uh, Probably a good sign that 20 years from now, we'll still be talking about the Russia investigation as well, uh, <laughs> in which case we will want to have you back on Skullduggery, Frank. It won't take 20 years before we have you back on. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I hope not. Uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a good conversation, guys. Stay well. Uh, be healthy. You, you, too, you too, Frank. Take Thanks care. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Thanks to former Assistant Director for Counterintelligence at the FBI, Frank Figluzzi, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.